Hello, this is the Made Musings podcast, the podcast that focuses on everyday issues, illnesses, and disabilities that affect everyday people. Find us anywhere you listen to your podcast and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Made Musings. Please subscribe. Today, I will be hosting Bill Morrow. Bill suffered a stroke at the age of 46, which is relatively young for somebody to have a stroke, but life happens. And I am aware that in the UK alone, over 100,000 people have a stroke every day. And in US, stroke is one of the leading causes of disability and death. Let's just have a basic introduction before I start giving all this information. Right. Sure. So welcome to the Mid Musings podcast, Bill. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. It's so important. It is. It is important that we raise awareness about all these things that happen to people in life and what we go through every day. Exactly. Yeah. So could you please give us a brief background into your stroke story? Sure. So basically, June 3rd, 2017, it was a Saturday. I had just watched the uh, Doctor Who first Doctor story, uh, The Gunfighters, the night before, which, by the way, probably the absolute worst Doctor Who story, but uh, and it probably... Who knows? Maybe it caused what happened the next morning. But uh, what do you mean? What do you mean if he caused it? Was it that bad? Oh, that that's that that story was just oh so bad, so hmm. bad. And with the singing and the whole premise of that story is that the doctor needs to have a tooth fixed, so the TARDIS takes him back to the OK Corral in the wet in the west of the U.S. So. I, I mean, so he could like have a barber yank his tooth out. I mean, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. But fortunately, uh, the rest of the series got so much better after that story. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, on, uh, on June 3rd, 2017, 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning, I woke up to use the bathroom. You already know something is going wrong because it's 7 a.m. on a Saturday and I'm awake. And so that's never a good sign. I turned over and my arm felt weird. So I figured I just slept on it funny because it's very easy to hurt yourself doing things like sleeping once you're in your 40s. But I I figured I just slept on it funny and uh, it would uh, sort of come back online in a few minutes. So I got up and my left arm didn't get any better. And I, I made my way to the bathroom and caught myself in the mirror and the left side of my face was starting to droop and I was having trouble standing because my left leg was, was going offline and I no longer had, you know, strong knee control. And I I realized that something here is terribly wrong. I was like, you know, maybe I should just give it a few minutes. Maybe this will go away but it it didn't made my way back to the bedroom woke up my girlfriend and said i think i need an ambulance so she uh recognized that 
I was probably having a stroke at age 46. She called uh, 911, the emergency number, and the ambulance showed up. Uh, By the time they got there, I was sort of sitting on the floor uh, so I wouldn't fall. uh, And I could barely move my my arm, my left arm and my my left leg. Uh, They did some tests. They're like, yep, it looks like you may be having a stroke. So they loaded me into the ambulance. They asked me which hospital I wanted to go to. And I, because I lived close to several and I just said Swedish because my girlfriend had had surgery there a few years earlier and, and didn't die. So I figured that's probably a good place to go. I'm not certain that I should have been making major life decisions like which hospital to go to while my brain is literally dying. Exactly. But, but yeah, exactly. But that's what we did. So turned, loaded me up, turned on the sirens and zipped on over there. And a few minutes later, they were wheeling me out of the ambulance and into the emergency room. We paused briefly while the nurses quickly stuck in some IVs and an ID bracelet and from there, it was straight into the CT scanner where they started checking to see if my brain was bleeding. Took me to the uh, the the uh, other uh, room in the ER and a little while later was back for an MRI where they look for a clot in my brain. And by that point, they were able to confirm I had had a stroke in my right middle cerebral artery. A clot had formed there and had basically killed a bunch of the cells in my basal ganglia, which is the part of the brain that coordinates movement with the body. I'm Um, so sorry about that. Having a stroke um, can be so devastating. And I understand when a stroke happens, it means blood supply is cut off from a particular part of the brain so in your own case it was the cerebral ganglia like you said and because of this several tests had to be carried out can you also tell us about your experience with the test and like how long each one of them took and how was the whole treatment given to you Sure, sure. So once they found out that the clot was in there, then they had to figure out what to do next. There are a bunch of treatments that they can do if you get there fast enough. Unfortunately, I was a wake-up stroke. Like I said, I woke up with symptoms, which means my last known time without symptoms was when I went to bed about five or six hours earlier. And that put me outside the window for treatment. So they couldn't do anything about it uh, at the time. Typically, once you experience, once symptoms begin, if you get to the hospital, the right hospital within an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, within that time frame, there's a bunch of different interventions they can do from clot busting medication to a process where they actually uh, insert a catheter through your groin up into your brain and then drag out the clot. But that has to happen very soon after symptoms start. And I was outside that window. So my, my day in the ER consisted of them doing 
the tests, the CT scan, the MRI, uh, which is where they saw the clot. They did an ultrasound of my heart to figure out if there was a hole in my heart that maybe a clot got through. Uh, And there were a bunch of other tests to sort of understand what was happening. Now, the thing about this is I still had some control of my arm for a big part of the day. But because of the way the clot was just cutting off those blood vessels, the damage from a stroke isn't just all instantaneous. It can take some time because what what's happening is the stroke is actually starving the nerve cells of food and oxygen. And so some will die right away. Some will be hanging on and sort of like the, uh, the fish flopping on the deck of a boat when you first pull it out of the water. And if you can restore the flow quickly enough, you can get those back. I continued to lose function until about three o'clock that afternoon. And by three o'clock that afternoon, I had zero control of my arm. I had zero control of my leg. My speech was slurred because I couldn't really control the muscles in that side of my face or that side of my, that, that part of my tongue. And uh, I couldn't sit up on my own because all those core muscles went offline as well. They, they took good care of me. They did the best they could. But that day began basically a month of living in the hospital. Oh. So, yeah. So for a few days, I was on a neuro ICU floor, uh, focused on uh, neuro care just to make sure I didn't have another stroke, to make sure there was nothing else going on and to give me a chance to do some to rebuild some initial strength. And then I was moved to another floor and I began inpatient therapy to start the process of recovering and then getting, getting back into the world. So sorry about your experience, but this is what happens to millions of people and I am glad you are still alive and you are able to tell us your experience. Some yeah, people, me, me too. Yeah. So some people actually die overnight when they have a stroke because the yeah. blood supply is cut off so suddenly, the oxygen level also drops. So mm-hmm. everything happens so fast. They don't even have the opportunity to be saved. But, right. Right. About 15% of strokes are fatal. Um. How did it get to the loss of the limb? Because you said you lost the function in the limb. You mm-hmm. lost the function in your arm and your face dropped and everything. Those are the five vital signs of stroke, really. Mm-hmm. So how did it get to the loss of the limb? Well, I lost the use of the limb because basically the brain forgot how to talk to it when it took out those cells in the basal ganglia, there was no way for the brain to then send instructions to my left arm. So it basically just didn't realize that it was there. I mean, even to this day, technically, there is nothing wrong with my arm. There is nothing wrong with my hand. There is nothing wrong with my leg. The problem is literally all in my head. It's that my brain no longer knows how to talk effectively 
to those those parts of my body. Oh yeah, right. It's it, that can be so stressful. Are there other ways that this um, combined effect of the loss of the limb and the stroke has impacted on you emotionally, physically, and mentally? Well, I think um, there are a couple of things going on. I uh, well, I have st- I have been getting some function back, and I can now walk with a cane as a result of a lot of rehab and a lot of work. Other impacts from the stroke have included. Uh, I am subject to neurofatigue now, and neurofatigue is sort of a special kind of exhaustion that comes with a brain injury. It's common in folks with stroke, with uh, TBI, a traumatic brain injury or a concussion, or with other neurological conditions where you just don't have the same energy levels anymore because the brain is working so hard with fewer resources to try and get stuff done. And I mean, especially in the early days, the first month after a stroke, the brain is swollen and it's trying to adjust and it's trying to sort of rebuild. And just going through that whole process of recovery, it takes a ton of energy. And whereas in the past, once you get tired or if I've gone a day, gone a couple of weeks of sleeping four hours as a night or something like that before the stroke, you know, I could still do it. You know, you get really tired. Sometimes you can still just push through. Now, once I, once the neurofatigue kicks in, it's like really just sort of hitting a wall and you just have to stop and have to sleep. And a lot of stroke survivors, a big regular part of their day is is taking a nap. And and for a while, I, I was taking a lot more naps too. The fatigue that comes with, with a stroke is one of those invisible disabilities that you don't see in somebody who has experienced this, but it is still impacting their life. The one way I like to describe it is, you know, normally most folks your energy level, it may be like this, the battery in your cell phone where it goes from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70 to 60 and on down through until you have to plug it in. With a brain injury, uh, your battery on your cell phone might only ever get up to 60 or 70%. And then it'll go down 60, 50, 40, and then suddenly five, one, zero, and you're just done. And you've just got to go ahead and, uh, and take that nap. Um, the other thing is, of course, this this completely flipped my life upside down. Now, in some respects, there were some, lu- I don't want to say lucky in this context, but when I had my stroke, I had already be, been unemployed for nine months. So I was actively looking for, for a job. So when I had the stroke, I didn't lose my job or anything like that. But it did mean that that summer I couldn't look for a job. And finally started again in that fall. And it took another uh, two years before I actually uh, started uh, working full-time again. So you're back to working full-time now. I I am working full-time. I am, uh, I'm actually a corporate trainer at Microsoft 
And my job is to teach journalists around the world how to use Microsoft Office. And the folks at Microsoft have been uh, have been great about accepting accepting this and letting me demonstrate what I can do and not just seeing, oh, you've had a stroke. Well, I don't think you can work here. So they have been uh, they've been great about about accepting accepting that and focusing on, okay, let's you can do the job. Great. Let's go do the job. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. Yes, it's great when employers have equal opportunities for people. Yes, you might not be able to move as much as before, but when you're still able to carry out your assignments or carry out the duties and the tasks that you are expected to, then I feel people should be offered the same opportunity. So it's great that Microsoft has done that and I'm really going to be screaming this. I love that. Yeah, it's great. And I'm, I mean, yes, I have lost a lot of my physical abilities. Uh, fortunately, I was never very athletic to begin with. <laughs> so I, I, I do say that, you know, if you wanted to uh, hire me to be on the uh, company uh, softball team, I'm probably not that much less effective now than I would have been before the stroke, but, (laughs) but now I have a good excuse. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, do you think your lifestyle might have contributed to you having a stroke? Did you have anything? Did they actually find out anything that caused this stroke when you had these examinations? What they're pretty, they're pretty sure what caused the stroke was uh, a high blood pressure for a few years. So I had typically had normal blood pressure for most of my life, but at at some point in my early 40s, it began rising and I didn't know I had high blood pressure. And that's one of the things about high blood pressure is that it doesn't hurt. There's no pain from it. The only way I found out was that one holiday season, I started getting nosebleeds. And I was getting major nosebleeds that would take a half hour to stop. And I was getting those every other day. And I realized this is not a, not a good thing. So I took my blood pressure when I got home and it was something like 200 over 160, which that's, that's like. That's get, high. That's like extreme high. That's like get to the emergency room high. Yeah. So uh, I was able to get an appointment with the doctor the next day and uh, they started getting me on blood pressure meds and we got that under control. But uh, so, so by the time I had the stroke, it was down to like one, probably like 130 over, over 85 or something. So much healthier, but that period of high blood pressure damaged uh, my blood vessels. It, uh, strained them, it irritated them, and made them more prone to having clots form. And that's what happened because of that damage over the several years to the blood vessels in my brain. Uh, eventually, one, uh, one morning, uh, a, a, you know, a clot had just formed at, at sort of a small branching part of my blood vessels and choked off the blood supply to that part of my brain. So, I mean, one thing everybody needs to do is get, get your blood pressure checked. You know, you can pick up a, a cheap blood pressure monitor under 30 bucks on, on Amazon or probably at your local pharmacy or, 
wherever you you just got to check in on this stuff from time to time and if it's getting high you got to take care of that whether that's going to be through medication whether that's going to be through changes to diet whether that's going to be by getting increased exercise any of that stuff the other thing that contributed to my blood pressure in addition to uh being overweight was one thing we also found after the stroke was that i had sleep apnea oh and sleep and sleep apnea is a condition where while you're sleeping, you, you stop breathing, you stop breathing. And usually most people are diagnosed with this when their their uh, their partner or their spouse complains about their snoring. Yeah. <laughs> but they did a test on me and found I was waking up 57 times every hour. Wow. That's how often I was stopping breathing. And so I had essentially been sleep deprived for probably the better part of 30 years. And just it, it wasn't until I got treated for the apnea that I suddenly discovered, did you know that when you wake up in the morning, you're not supposed to be groggy? <laughs> no, when you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to be alert because you've had sufficient sleep to get your body rested. But uh-huh. if you've not had sufficient sleep, then you're groggy, you're tired, you're you're just like not not your normal self. So exactly. if you wake up being groggy all the time and you wake up tired, that means you're either deprived of oxygen or you have sleep apnea or something is just not right with your body. So get that checked out. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I wear the machine at night now that pushes air into my nose and it took me about a week to get used to it and it just makes such a huge difference yeah and one thing i notice is that some people in the winter they do not open their windows this is really important i'm talking about this from speaking to people i know a lot of people do not open their windows, especially when the winter time comes for people who live in the western part of the world. Yes, it's cold, but we still need oxygen. We still need fresh air. We still need cross ventilation. And that's one thing that also helps, especially in this pandemic, even if the virus is in your house, once you let fresh air in and the fresh air goes through that's what we call cross ventilation this is so essential for anyone we we live in a world where we go through the same motions every day when we get used to a particular routine it takes a lot of effort to get out of that routine and this is not helpful cross ventilation and oxygen supply is always essential yeah absolutely plus even when it's cold, when you open up your windows, uh, that just gives you an excuse to wear all those awesome big fluffy sweaters and socks and go to sleep underneath big comforters and blankets and really snuggle down. And that's just fun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So talking about your experience as well with this stroke, how were you rehabilitated? I can't even speak today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How were you rehabilitated after the stroke? So after stroke, I, uh, they moved me to inpatient rehab for therapy. 
and I had both physical therapy and occupational therapy. I was lucky in that I didn't lose speech or cognitive abilities, so I didn't have to have speech therapy. But what that meant is that three hours a day, I was working with my my PT or my OT. And the difference in those functions is that the OT, the occupational therapist, their job is to help with upper limb mobility and ADLs or activities of daily living. So what that meant is that the OTs would come in and they would help me learn how to do things like shower or brush my teeth or make those those different kinds of changes. And then they would work with me on uh, on getting on trying to teach my brain how to use my arm again, while at the same time trying to make sure my brain didn't forget that the arm was there. They treat things like shoulder subluxation, because one of the things that happens, well, first of all, the shoulder is probably the single worst design joint in the human body. I mean, it's just terrible engineering. <laughs> but the, the, <laughs> like the world engineering, terrible engineering. <laughs> well, Exactly. exactly. Not, there's nothing we can do about it. It's the way we are all formed. So <laughs> we have to adapt to that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But the, the way your arm attaches to your torso, there's not an actual joint with bone. Your arm is just held in place with muscle and tendons. What happens when you lose control of those muscles is that gravity starts pulling your arm away from your shoulder and your arm essentially just starts falling out, which can be incredibly painful and can make it very difficult to get function back. So an occupational therapist helps to treat that either with slings, with teaching you to support your arm, uh, as well as with using like the kinesio tape, the, the fancy tape that you see on all the Olympic athletes where they just have like all these crazy strategies of tape holding them together, doing that on the shoulder. And then they help work on range of motion. So very early in rehab, that may be the therapist just sort of physically moving your arm through its range of motion to help make sure that you don't seize up to help uh, give your brain input so your brain can start sort of rewiring and building new connections and new patterns to be able to adapt to that, as well as treating uh, what can be, what can happen, which is called neglect, where neglect is, is a really weird thing where Uh, Depending on the severity, in some cases, you simply lose complete awareness of the left side of your body or the right side. In some cases, people actually lose sort of their left, sort of one side of their vision from both eyes. So you can actually be eating your dinner and you only end up eating what's on one half of the plate because you're just not aware of anything else on the other half. In my case, there was maybe a little bit of that where I just wasn't paying attention to my limb. And, you know, when you don't have control, suddenly you could you do things like you look down and there's your left hand in between the frame of the wheelchair and the wheel of the wheelchair, which is a very bad place for it to be. So that's that's one of the things they're doing is they're teaching you how to remind you to be aware of where your arm is and where 
your hand is. So I would have to go ahead and reach over with my unaffected side and just sort of lift up my left hand to put it back uh, on my lap or wherever so it wouldn't get hurt. So, I mean, that's one of those things that they, they teach you. And they're also then, again, working on helping you get some motion back, get some grip back. And after a couple of weeks, I was finally able to go ahead and close my fingers a little bit and actually grasp. But it takes time and it takes a lot of work. The occupational therapists are also the ones who will offer insight on what sort of adaptations your home might need when you go home from everything from support railings in the bathroom to patterns and tips for how you can get into bed, how you can uh, get uh, get up off the floor, and, and just what you need to do to sort of live the best life that you can. Oh, yes. It's, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating field. The physical therapists were more focused on lower limbs. So it was my, my PTs who taught me how to walk again. And they're uh, doing everything from, again, working with just helping to move my leg through its range of motion, driving different exercises there, trying to help rebuild my core muscles, trying to just sort of build up some of that endurance and and just sort of getting you up in between the parallel bars to take two steps, which is exhausting. And then you take a break and then going through that. And as you go through the process, eventually they've got you, they have me uh, walking uh, with uh, a four point cane. And then we graduated to a one point cane uh, walking, you know, 10 feet in the hallway, then walking the length of the hallway and just doing all of this over uh, the course of several weeks as they worked with that and started uh, figuring out, okay, what kind of brace are you going to need for your foot? And, and those different types of things while trying to help you avoid bad habits that you can develop as you try to relearn how to walk. So, I mean, it was a great, it was a great team. It's a great team to work with, to have those people uh, there. Uh, generally, the the physical therapists, that's sort of a doctorate level program. So they get super deep into the anatomy and the mechanics uh, of gait and all sorts of things like that. The occupational therapists are more focused on the general, broader living life type of thing. I, I had one therapist where I, I asked her why she chose to be an OT. And she had been going to school for physical therapy and was shadowing a physical therapist one day, helping people walk and work with their lower limbs. And then she looked over at... Uh, another group in the hospital and uh, saw that the occupational therapist was helping her patient learn how to bake cookies and work with the oven. And she's like, Ooh, I want to do that. It's amazing what the therapists do. The occupational therapists, they are more concerned with getting your life back to as normal as possible given the constraint of your stroke. But the physical therapies, what they do is just like get you moving, just get your muscles back to normal. And it's amazing what they do. And you actually mentioned the four-point cane and mm-hmm. um, use of one-point cane at different times. What's the difference between these canes? 
a four point cane is the type you see that will have, you know, sort of four legs coming off of it. It tends to be one that it can stand up on its own. A four point cane will really provide a little bit more stability and it will provide a little bit more support. You could put more weight on it. So especially somebody who is maybe struggling with balance may uh, benefit more from a four point cane uh, or even a walker of some sort. A single point cane is what we typically think of as a cane, just basically a stick with a handle at the end. So it doesn't take as much weight and it doesn't provide as much stability, but it is lighter and it's more maneuverable and it makes you makes you work harder. So as you go through therapy, as you go through recovery, as you recover those skills and rebuild skills, as your body can take more of the standing, as your body can, your affected limb can support you better. And as your balance starts to return, you can move from the, uh, the four point cane to the single point to ultimately, ultimately no cane. Uh, that's of course, assuming that you, you can get to that point. A lot of folks still will leave the hospital in a wheelchair full-time or part-time or they'll move to a walker or a, a rollator and um, different configurations like that. But basically it's, it's sort of where you're at in your recovery and, and what you need to use to get around safely. Cause ultimately safety is what matters. Uh, oh. To this day, I, I can get around my apartment just fine without a cane. Well, I, I sort of limp all around, but when I go outside, I still, uh, I still use the, uh, the single point cane. Oh, definitely. Yes. I just wanted you to be able to explain the fact that the four point cane was more of a support system to put your weight on when you are still struggling with the stroke. You are gradually moved to the one point cane when your muscles recover and the more they recover, then you can put more weight on your own legs, on your own system and not on the cane itself. Do you feel that the care that you had, yes, I think you actually explained this bit that the care you had was really exceptional. Sounds like you were in great hands at the time. I, 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 I was, it's been, you know, they, they've said that in, in the United States, if you're going to have a stroke, Seattle is the city to do it in. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we, I, I had uh, I had some great support at the hospital, and then I you know even when I was going out back there for outpatient care for a while a- afterwards as well. I mean, uh, my therapists, my doctors were you know were just fantastic, and they were great to work with, and they cared, and they took care of me, and I'm still in touch with a lot of them, which is great. Yeah. So, do you still have your physical therapist right now? I was using different physical therapists for outpatient once I was discharged and eventually insurance ran out. (laughs) So I stopped going there because, well, America (laughs) and uh, I was going to start up again and then pandemic happened. So they are still offering outpatient therapy and different therapy options. But I'm at the point now where it's not super critical for me to be going So I'd rather just, you know what, let's just not put that extra burden on the system. Ultimately, I do want to get back into physical therapy with the goal of learning how to run again, because 
yeah, I can walk just fine. I can, uh, well, not just fine. I can walk around. I can get around. But if I need to extract myself from an emergency, I, I, I cannot run yet. So that can be that can be a challenge. So that's sort of uh, what I want to do when I get back into physical therapy, which I'll probably uh, look at doing once uh, the uh, once the COVID nineteen is mostly under control, and I really want everybody to help me out with that. So mask up, don't be don't be don't be stupid with the big gatherings, and uh, get the vaccine when you're able to get the vaccine. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Definitely. I know the pandemic has impacted uh, negatively on some people, especially with mental health. When you're not able to go out and you're not able to socialize with other people. But yes, we have other ways of doing things. I'm meeting with you. You are in Seattle. I am in Manchester in the United Kingdom. And we've never actually met before the pandemic, but now exactly. we are connecting on Zoom. We are connecting different ways. We are finding different ways of doing things. So, yes, people can do things differently, which is one of the benefits of the pandemic, fortunately. <laughs> but also, there are other really negative sides to the pandemic in that mental health is suffering. Uh, people are losing jobs. People are being not being able to connect with their families, actually affecting them emotionally as well. People dying. That's the most horrible way anybody can die without having loved ones around, without the loved ones being able to say goodbye to them. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's the thing too, though. I mean, yeah, it's hard to connect and it's harder to socialize, but you know what? It's a heck of a lot harder to socialize when you're six feet under. Definitely. I understand that. What we're finding now is that in the U.S., uh, even if you've recovered from COVID-19, it's increased your chances of having a stroke. So we're seeing upwards of 1,500 strokes a week now caused by COVID-19 infections that people have recovered from, which is almost a 10% increase in stroke. So even if you recover from the uh, from the virus, it's still done damage to your heart, it's done damage to your blood vessels, it's done damage to your kidneys, and it's increased the chances you're going to have a stroke, which is going to lead to a whole bunch of other problems. You mean that having the virus contributes to having stroke, or is it the people that have that have not had a chance to have their regular checkups that are actually now increasing the fatalities. I, I think it, it, there's an element of both that's probably uh, probably at play there, but the virus is actually causing stroke. What it's doing is there's an interaction between the, the protein spikes on the virus and the epithelial cells within the blood vessels of the brain that is causing an irritation and an inflammation response in those blood vessels, which is leading to more clots and other conditions within the brain that are leading to stroke. So the, the virus itself is direct, the damage from the virus itself is directly causing stroke. I just want to say this in case anybody needs stroke support or you feel you're having a stroke, if you're based in the UK, 
you can dial 111 for help. There will be somebody at the end of the phone to talk you through what to do and they could actually give you at least first aid help before you get to the hospital, to the emergency room, and that could save a life. For anyone listening outside the UK or the US, just call your emergency number if you think you're having a stroke and you will be connected with somebody who can help you. For anybody going through mental health problems, there are mental health charities that help. And these charities include Mind in the UK. The number for Mind is 0300-123-3393. And CAM also stands for Campaign Against Living Miserably. They are available on web chat and also on 0800-585858. I think what you're going to find in the U.S. is that uh, if you there's any chance you or somebody around you might be experiencing a stroke, call 911, the emergency number, get an ambulance and have them take you to the appropriate hospital. You'll also find uh, different uh, support in your community, different, uh, um, whether that's going to be for mental health support, for uh, post-stroke support, definitely you want to look at what is going to be available in your community. And uh, a lot of the local support groups are now meeting online uh, due to the pandemic. So that expands the number of support groups that that you have access to. And of course, we have a number of uh, there are a lot of other people who are out there talking about stroke. The Instagram stroke community is fantastic. The Twitter community is fantastic. And then I run my own podcast all about stroke as well. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. That's great to know. What's your podcast called? It, it is called Strokecast, S-T-R-O-K-E-C-A-S-T. And you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts in uh whether that's going to be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, whatever, or just go to strokecast.com. Thank you so much for that. Do you have a last word for anyone during this time? Uh, I would say uh, check your blood pressure, get that under control, and remember to be fast. B fast is how you recognize the signs of stroke. B is for balance, sudden loss or change in balance. E for eyes, uh, sudden loss or change in vision can indicate a stroke. F is for face, uh, look for facial drooping. A is for arms, the inability to hold both arms out. S refers to speech, if your speech is suddenly slurred or you're having trouble with language. And the T is for time to call an ambulance. So B fast. Balance, eyes, face, arm, speech, time to call the ambulance. Oh, thank you so much. It's the same here in the UK as well. Be fast. And just the same acronyms, yes. So thank you so much for sharing that information. I actually forgot about it. And um, it's been great having you on my podcast, sharing your story. Though it's been emotional, but I'm glad that you are doing well, considerably. Well, well, thank you for having me. I hope, uh, hope it's able to help someone. Oh, yeah, definitely would be. Thank you so much and have a great evening. You too. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening. 
please download and share with your friends and family and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Listening Note, Podchaser, Good Pods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocket Cast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comment, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also on our website www.podbean forward slash midmusings.com. Thank you very much.